I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. Welcome to the show, Marty. Thanks very much, Steve. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, and you're joining me all the way from sunny Colorado. That's right. (laughs) So um, I've heard a lot of good things about Colorado in terms of its density when it comes to uh, startups and entrepreneurship, in particular Boulder, Colorado, which from what I understand has a population of about 100,000 people, but punches way above its weight when it comes to um, the startup ecosystem and venture capital investment. It is. I'm uh, at the moment. I'm on the other side of Colorado in a small town in the mountains. Um, but uh, uh, I have been to Boulder a few times, and it's a pretty nice community. But I'm I'm from the Bay Area, San Francisco area. Yep, fantastic. Well, um, we're having this conversation today because a few months ago you released a book called Inspired Two: How to Create Tech Products Customers Love, which which is a follow up to how to create products customers love from a few years prior. Um, What are you hoping readers will get out of uh, Inspired Mark II, Marty? Well, it was really the same. It's the same objective um, from the first edition. But, you know, the first edition came out literally 10 years ago. And um, in the tech industry, I know you know this, it's, that's a long time. Um, I, I, the vast majority of that first edition is still relevant. There's only a couple chapters I really sort of wish I didn't include. But um, what, Why is that? <laughs> well, because what is considered best practice today is uh, significantly further along than what it was 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, I was really trying to push people to agile, push people to lean startup. And now um, virtually everybody uh, has been practicing these techniques for a long time. Uh, most of what I talked about is still relevant, and it's just that uh, there are there. I think there's just way better ways of explaining really everything, and so it ended up being a complete rewrite. But the purpose of the book was really the same. It was really all about tech products. It was about tech products in the first edition, but there were still quite a few people from the non-tech world mm-hmm. that got the book, and I just wanted to make clear to everybody that it's really about tech products. Fantastic. And um, I mean, your book kicks off by telling a story um, of your time at HP in the mid-80s where you were a young software engineer. You had high hopes for an AI-enabled, well, for AI-enabled technology. Um, And during this particular ordeal, shall we say, you learned a very valuable lesson. What was it? Well, that really that it's just not about – it's not all about engineering and that it's it's really – you need to make sure you have something worth building. It really doesn't matter how great your engineering talent is if you don't do that. So a lot of, a lot of people have learned that lesson, not yeah. just me. Yeah. So for our audience's benefit, I mean, what actually happened there at HP when you were a young engineer? Well, ironically, it was uh, HP's first uh, AI technology product. And um, we were all very excited about that. And that's what I had studied at university. So um, it turned out to be, uh, you know, AI technology is only now coming to fruition. But the truth is, we did an AI product that was, you know, decades premature, literally decades premature, there was just no market for that technology. Uh, And, um, 
and of course the technology itself even if there was a market it was before the era of big data there was a lot of the raw ingredients that really weren't there but uh, the point was there was no market for this there weren't customers waiting and so even though i still have patents to my name based on that effort there was some great technology it's just uh, great technology without a market is not very exciting yeah, and I mean, you know, fast forward almost three decades, well, three decades, uh, and that whole notion of great technology without, you know, commercial applications, it doesn't seem like a fair chunk of the business community has really moved on from that. I mean, we're still seeing multi-million dollar failures, particularly amongst a lot of your more, say, traditional organizations who still tend to rely very heavily on outsourcing accountability to steering committees, which ultimately adds complexity and cost to things, and things can take a lot longer than was initially envisaged. And you know, when all is said and done, that benefits realization that product teams often seek out just isn't there. And you, know, you mentioned earlier, Agile and Lean Startup are being practiced by a lot of uh, firms out in the valley and amongst firms in the startup ecosystem, but amongst your larger, more traditional firms, it seems like from where I'm sitting, a lot of them are still making those same mistakes. Oh, they are. It's it is to be honest, it's depressing at times how how for so long we've known these things, um, and I see these problems, like you said, especially at pre-internet companies. Um, but I, I have to also admit, I've seen the problems at uh, modern companies, sometimes located just literally uh, less than a mile from from great companies like Google and Amazon, and they still um, are doing things in that old way. And you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for this. That's a that's a long conversation. There are a lot of fundamental reasons why companies often don't. Um, work the way they really need to and they often well some of them are literally are they have no idea how good companies actually work and are really surprised to learn how they work but other other ones know how they work and they still um aren't willing to really um embrace the the differences and it does, you know, it's not necessarily easy. It does require hiring the right people. It requires really empowering teams and requires a lot of senior management letting go more than they're used to and often comfortable with. And so it's not that I think it's, uh, you know, inexplicable. I think there are reasons for it. Um, but the truth is, like you said, we still have just as many terrible products out there as ever. Just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. One thing separates OK Venture Returns from great venture returns. Deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. And uh, you mentioned there that there's uh, you know, managers who have no idea how companies should be run. Do you think that's a reflection of them not caring or them not having been shown the literature or, or having had the right conversations? What do you think that might be a reflection of or is it all of the above? It's all and more. I mean, mm -hmm. the uh, 
it is our industry. I, I think this is really a statement about our industry, but it has not done a great job in sharing best practices. I think in most industries, uh, academia plays a stronger role, mm-hmm. but in the for again for for various reasons in the technology industry, uh, in my experience, the best companies are actually leading academia rather than following academia. So there isn't a good way to spread how uh, when when good teams really figure things out, it doesn't spread the way it does say in other industries. Um, so the truth is there's this big disparity, really a chasm between how great teams work and how most teams work. Yeah, and uh, I actually love what you said there, that the best companies lead academia rather than follow it. I think that's a really good takeaway. But um, on, on the book, I mean, we've kind of been talking about the fact that there's so many different variables that influence uh, where companies are at today, whether they're good at building products or not so good at it. And in your book, you um, explore uh, people, process, and culture. And I found that there was some parallels between that and what um, Clayton Christensen talked about in uh, The Innovator's Dilemma way back in, I think it was 97, when he said that in order to build an innovative company, you need the alignment of resources, processes, and values. So when it comes to people, process, and culture, do product teams need to score high across all three areas to perform well, Marty? Um, those three areas and more, one of the challenging things about tech products is you kind of need lots of things to go right. <laughs> In other words, if anything goes wrong, uh, you will probably have a failed product. So it does require quite a few things going right. Um, you have to make sure you've got the skills on the team. You've got to make sure you've got a strong market. You've got to make sure the team knows how to actually discover a solution that will people will buy and can figure out how to use and your engineers can deliver and works for your business. Uh, you've got to do all these things successful to actually have a successful product. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, that includes the teams. It includes the leadership. It includes the culture. Yeah, it's, you can see it's definitely hard. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I was actually having this conversation the other day about um, how a lot of, uh, well, actually also wrote an article about it, how a lot of corporate innovation teams tend to just default to what's the simplest answer, you know, Occam's Razor, and they'll just run something like an idea challenge, collect ideas. They'll have a senior executive pick the winning idea, they'll allocate a bit of funding, and of course, it will go nowhere because betting in one idea based on what People inside the building think is never really the best way to go about building a product. And, you know, you've been talking about Lean Startup since Inspired One came out 10 years ago, but it's still not being applied. And, you know, we've got inadequate resources in a lot of organizations, um, conflicting policies and procedures, uh, misalignment of, of incentives, and oftentimes getting the wrong people on the bus. So it doesn't matter how good the environment is, how good the processes are, the resources, but if you've got people on the bus who either aren't skilled enough or just don't believe in the mission and and don't care, um, there's only so far you can go. So I guess on that notion of teams, um, you know, there's no secret that a talent war is raging when it comes to building tech products. Um, I mean, what have you found when it comes to trying to attract and acquire high caliber talent to teams, um, if you don't necessarily have, say, the capital of someone like a Netflix, who, who whose whole HR policy is pay at the top of the market. Yeah, well, so um, 
when I work, most of what I do is advise startups and growth stage companies. And when I work with these companies, there's really a couple strategies out there that I think uh, are both of them work. Um, one is have a very high bar and set, you know, make sure that you've got a strong interview team and you hire, you really, that would be the Netflix approach or where you really do, um, you'd much rather have a much smaller organization of very, very strong, competent people. Even though, I mean, the truth is, this is true with Netflix too, despite the advertising, not everybody is a rock star at any of these, any of the best companies. There, There is a mix. At some point, you are going to have, I'm not suggesting you're lowering your standard, but I am suggesting you're going to get a lot more of a mix on your uh, in your organization. And, you've, and then it becomes much more about how do you get ordinary people to do great results. And that's the other strategy is how do you take strong people but uh, that have probably never done it before and really help provide the context and the training that they need so that they can actually um, do great work. And there was some research actually done a few years ago by Google that looked at the highest performing product teams. And the surprise was that they're typically not the teams of rock stars. Um, you'd think that if you just assemble from Google does have a high bar. So there's a lot of talent there. If you just hire sort of an all-star team that they would just consistently deliver. And it's really not the case at all. Um, in fact, consistently, the better teams are those that have this uh, this uh, other set of traits. So it's really more about how uh, effective teams work together. And it's a lot less about that team of all-stars. Um, and so that's what I usually encourage them to do. Make sure that they are uh, getting the most out of their talent um, Steve Jobs used to say, you know, we don't, um, we didn't hire all these smart people in order to tell them what to do. But that's in fact what most of those companies, or the non-great companies, do is they hire, they try to hire these really good people, and then they give them a roadmap and just say, go build. Yeah, which isn't great when it comes to um, employee morale and whatnot. Uh, just telling people what to do, particularly if they are talented, um, you. I guess great leadership, um, if you read the literature, is all about helping get the best out of people and facilitating those outcomes rather than just coming in and saying, okay, here's a list of directives, just go get it done. One of the common problems out there is that, like you said in your scenario well, a few minutes ago, the management gets together and they say, you know, they debate an idea and they say, let's, let's build this, <laughs> let's fund this. And that's exactly really the wrong approach. What you want to do is have the management focus on not the solution. Ideas are just potential solutions. But what's the problem? What is the, the need that we've got to go address? And then you want to really empower a team to try out many approaches to solve that. It will, in even the best organizations, it will take many approaches, many attempts before they figure out a solution that actually works. Yeah, exactly right. People rarely get it right on the first attempt. And I think if you look at uh, venture capital funnels as well, uh, the number of startups that make it through to say that fifth round or, or that sixth round of funding where they ultimately becomes a billion dollar organizations, it's something like less than 1%. Yet when executives at these more traditional organizations are making those investment decisions, it, it seems like there's this preconceived idea that 
they're going to get it right on the first attempt, even though they haven't engaged a customer yet. Yeah. No, it's a classic, it's a classic anti-pattern. Um, the way the large organizations fund, uh, when I say large, the, the large pre-internet companies, we're not mm-hmm. talking about the Amazons or the Googles here, but uh, the way they do it is just really archaic. Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess just to sum up the uh the conversation on teams ultimately it's about um building that champion team rather than a team of champions which is a, a saying that comes right out of the world of sports it's no different in in when it comes to tech products and building teams in the tech space absolutely fantastic um you know we mentioned uh, lean startup a few moments ago and uh seems to be a running theme this conversation thus far um I guess uh, what I try to do on this show is also to explore the flip side and the contrary argument. And there's a, quite a few people in this space nowadays starting to push back a little bit when it comes to lean startup because, for example, in certain industries, you might go to market with, say, a quote-unquote half-baked product. Um, and if the industry is small, you might burn your bridges and suffer from what people are now calling an MVP hangover, where some of the key people in your industry associate your brand with, um, say, a less than optimal product, and it can ultimately compromise your potential for success. So, I mean, what would you propose or what do you think a smarter way of applying a lean startup is that won't result in that hangover? Well, there's actually a backlash not just against uh, lean startup, but also against agile. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at one level, they're absolutely right. The backlash there are so. M- In fact, I'll be honest: the vast majority of teams I meet, they all tell me that they are agile and using lean startup. But when I actually look at what they're doing, they're really not doing either of them in any meaningful sense. So. Uh, you know, it's this is kind of what happens in, uh, I think it probably happens in all industries, but in the tech industry, it happens a lot. Something comes out like Lean Startup or the other thing that's going on right now is design thinking. Uh, these are good techniques for what they're designed for, but the industry tends to want to... Uh, Treat it like a silver bullet. You know, yes. this is the thing that's going to solve all these problems. And inevitably, it doesn't. None of those things do. In fact, I try to tell people, um, you know, you really, there is no one tool. It's You need many different techniques and tools for the job. Sometimes design thinking is exactly what we need. Sometimes the, a true MVP is exactly what we need. And they just, they don't... Um, they don't understand really what the tool technique is for and the right way to adopt it. And, and in fairness, there are uh, the way minimum viable product, which is probably one of the most important concepts in the entire tech industry, the way it's explained by most people is really uh, not good. And it's just very confusing. And so people get this idea, you know, and they do. They ship a really crappy product, a half-baked product in about four or five months and they call that MVP and then they're, they're frustrated because people don't like it and their company's embarrassed by it. And I'm like, that is not even close to an MVP. That is just a bad product. That's all you've done. Uh, a true MVP, we can typically do MVPs in days or weeks and, and they're not meant to be uh, shipped to the general public. They're meant to be used to assess risk. Uh, whether that's value risk or usability risk or feasibility risk or viability risk. And so uh, 
there, that's a whole conversation. We have more than 100 techniques just to uh, try out different aspects of MB- MVPs. And so most people are, again, uh, unaware of what this is really about. They've just seen a video or they've, you know, uh, read a book and they think they think they know. And uh, so, of course, they get, they get in trouble and then a year later they throw it out as not workable. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite, quite interesting. And I think it ties back into what I was saying earlier that people, uh, executives tend to look for the simplest solution because it's the one that I suppose creates the least cognitive load for us. And it's like, well, let's do something. And and then we tend to uh, conflate action with effectiveness and productivity and it makes us feel busy, but ultimately the results aren't there. And, you know, you said that uh, with design thinking and lean startup and all these different tools and techniques, um, they serve a purpose, but they serve one role in, in, in a much greater, say, spectrum of end-to-end delivery. I mean, design thinking is great for coming up with that idea, but in terms of building that idea and taking it to market and ensuring that your organization has the right culture and processes and whatnot to support that on an ongoing uh, period of time, that's a totally different beast. And it really just plays like 5 or 10% of the role, but uh, so many executives see it as the silver bullet solution. And once you have that hammer, everything suddenly becomes a nail. It's true. And I don't only blame the executives. I mean, if you look at the industry, every time something comes out, you have a whole bunch of consultants and books and uh, people will come out and sell themselves as a coach for you to do this and it'll solve all these problems. It's just a very, it's just such a common pattern. We've seen it so many times. Um, so conscious that we're uh, we're a little bit on the skeptical side here, Marty. So maybe we can amp it up and, and give our listeners some optimism. Um, your book's full of case studies and profiles of some of today's um, most successful product managers and technology-powered companies. I mean, you've got case studies in there from Adobe, Apple, BBC, Google, Microsoft, um, Netflix, and a few others. Um, is there a story that immediately jumps out that you'd like to share with our audience, Marty? Oh, the, I mean, I I picked. Stories. I mean, I I I've actually been working with tech product teams now for 35 years, so I have lots of stories. Mm. Um, that's probably my what's different about me is I've been doing it so long and and exclusively with tech product teams. And so, I I have uh, I do know a lot of great teams. Some of those teams, a small subset of those teams, have really gone on to build iconic products. And so I decided to highlight the people behind some of the most iconic products, like I featured the original product manager for uh, Netflix, the original product manager for Google AdWords. Um, These are just... um, uh, amazing stories, any of them really. I, Google AdWords, I think it's did the last year over $70 billion. Uh, and it's just outrageously successful, you know, with off the charts margins. It's, it's like printing money. And the, but it's very few people know the backstory with that and, and how close Google came to not even doing the effort. The salespeople there didn't want it done, and the engineers didn't want it done. And it really, like anything, it, it's hard. And it took somebody, and in, in this case, a woman named Jane Manning, to uh, to figure out a solution that kept sales happy and kept engineering happy. Didn't didn't really uh, dilute the results with advertising, and didn't cannibalize the sales for the sales organization. Uh, and 
came up with a pretty amazing solution that turned out to be, you know, certainly orders of magnitude more successful than even they dreamt could be possible. So, but that's, um, there's, I'll tell you that there's a story like that behind every great product. I find that there's, there are always, it's always hard. There's always challenges at Netflix. They were almost out of money, almost went bankrupt. They actually turned, they tried to sell themselves to Blockbuster. If you remember Blockbuster Mm -hmm. from, and anyway, they were, they were close to dying and, uh, but they figured it out. They figured out a solution that was pretty awesome, and it ended up carrying them for seven years, and then they totally disrupted themselves again and created really the Netflix we know today. And the, the point is, the, it is always hard, and but in every case, I know that there are these teams that just figure it out, product design, engineering, they sit together and they figure it out. And that's really what product is about. It's combining those skill sets together to come up with a, uh, a solution that people actually want to buy and they can figure out how to use and we can actually build and it is legal to sell. I mean, I'm, if you think of things like Uber and Airbnb, it's got to be something that you know works within the laws of New York City or um, the zoning restrictions of San Francisco or whatever it might be. And that's this is all hard, but that's what product is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I mean, on that Jane Manning story, Marty, um, I think that's something worth fleshing out because Google by that point had a product, like you said, they've had their sales teams, their engineering teams, and Jane wanted to introduce something that wasn't all about just delivering on the existing business model. It was about discovering something new. But a lot of people, um, such as your sales guys and your engineers, don't want to deliver results. They don't want to cannibalize the existing uh, product. How did she actually go about getting that buy-in from the firm? Was there any specific takeaways that our listeners can get out of that story that they might be able to apply? Because a lot of firms that I work with, one of the big challenges I get, uh, one of the a lot of the pushback that I hear from people is that when they try and do something new, the sales guys won't let them get in front of their customers, for example, or the engineers won't support it. So what might they try to take out of that particular example um, to move the needle in their own organizations? Yeah, well, I think there are a lot of good lessons uh, that that are true, not just with that early AdWords product, but most of the products. So there are always objections. They don't always come from the same place, but (laughs) there are always objections. Um, And sometimes they're really tough objections. They might be uh, driven by um, uh, regulations, like EU's got some new laws that are throwing a wrench into a lot of product efforts right now. But it's it's there's always something. And so first of all, I I think it takes somebody, um, and and I. I focus a lot of my effort on the product manager. Uh, in truth, what I really care about are product teams, which is product management, user experience design, and engineering. So those three kind of have to work together to solve these problems. But the design and engineering is pretty well understood, but product is often not well understood. And the first lesson is, you know, the product person has to really do their homework. They really have to understand all of these constraints on the business, financial, marketing, sales. Uh, and that's exactly what um, Jane started with. She, she sat down to really understood what to understand what was it that was so bothering the engineers. And 
it was she was able to understand pretty quickly what was bothering them, and it was legitimate. Their most advertising was really bad back then, and they were working you know they were working around the clock to make Google search results better than anybody's, and they were succeeding. And so the last thing they wanted to do is throw that all away by littering their results with a bunch of irrelevant ads. So they were nervous about that, and mm-hmm. and they were also she sat down to understand what was it that was bothering the salespeople so much. And they under, she understood that it's, I mean, there's a name for it in our industry. It's called cannibalization. This is where the sales force worries that they're actually undermined by their own organization that has a different product. And so she understood that. And she really sat down with the leaders of, of sales and the leaders of engineering to understand what their concerns were. One of the um, smart, I mean, she did a lot of, it wasn't just her, but, she especially did a lot of smart things to pull that off. And one of the things she needed to do, because at Google, really, the engineers are very powerful. Uh, and personally, I think this is a good thing. But if the engineers are not convinced, it's not going to get built. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not the case in a lot of like banks and old companies. If the engineers don't, aren't convinced, they're replaced with engineers that will build whatever you, you, know, you tell them to. But in great companies, no, they do need to be convinced. I personally think this is a good thing. So she, um, it made her really work on her case, her argument. One of the things she did is she went to one of the most respected engineers in the company, and she she argued the problem, not the solution. She argued the problem, which was really helping these small businesses get access to search results. And it was going to be, it's like, how don't you think we should be able to have a good solution for this? And um, this engineer absolutely agreed with her. And she said, "What? well, okay, because, uh, you know, I'm glad you agree this is a real problem. Can you help me convince the engineers that this is a real problem? And he did. He did help them understand that. And once they, they were really on board with it's a problem, then they get started this much more interesting conversation about, well, what's a solution that would actually work for customers and not hurt our experience for our users? And, uh, and that's what they came up with. And that's, that's the kind of work that good product people do. Well, I guess it's true what they say. It doesn't matter what role you're in, we're all in sales. And just looking at some of the tactics that Jane applied there, like firstly, um, identifying the objections. I mean, that's something a good salesperson does to understand what's going to prevent a deal from closing and then how can you structure that deal so it goes forward. And then also doing what good marketers do, which is um, influencer marketing and finding out who's influential in your space, who can influence the, the buyer's um, in this case, it was one of the more respected engineers, and she had that conversation with him, and then he was able to then influence the rest of the engineers. So I think that's an interesting sort of a parallel there between sales, marketing, and trying to get that buy-in internally. Yes, and like I said, there's always obstacles. In every case, there are always obstacles. It's just, uh, if it was easy, somebody would have done it a long time ago. So uh, this is really what product teams do is they come up with solutions that really work for customers and for the business. Yep, definitely. And um, just wanted to revisit something you said a short while ago in the conversation, which was around Agile um, and Lean Startup and how teams purport to be applying it, but they're not really applying it. It's kind of like when they say, we're applying Scrum, but you know, it's Scrum, but you're not really applying it to the letter of the law. Now, some organizations and some people will say, well, we're applying it and um, appropriating it for our 
for the nuances of our organization and culture. But at what point does that appropriation start to lose the, um, the underlying sort of spirit of what agile is to the point where you're not really getting the value anymore? Yeah. Well, recently I actually wrote about, um, an example of this. Uh, so, and I want to be clear, this isn't what I really, what I meant when I was talking about people not doing agile, even more basic benefits of agile, but there, there are processes out there. Uh, if you've ever heard of safe, it stands for scaled agile framework. Um, these are processes that purport to sort of be agile, but really, in my opinion, it is a complete marketing ploy. There is no agile there that in no meaningful sense. It is very much a command and control return to the 1980s, 19, early 1990s. And I understand why in a lot of big banks and insurance companies that appeals to them. But I also have absolutely no hope they will get the level of uh, innovation and speed out of it that they think that they think they well they do need but they're not going to get it so uh, it's that's an easy one to draw the line what i was talking about is even more basic teams that are really trying to do for example scrum is not hard to do Uh, it's usually where most teams start it is not hard and it does provide real value it doesn't provide it doesn't solve the hard problems in our industry but it does provide real value when i find teams that are not at least using scrum I will usually sort of embarrass them into moving forward because at this point, there's really no excuse not to. But you can absolutely be following Scrum to the letter of the law, you know, all the rituals and not getting any of the benefits. The classic example of that is they're supposedly an agile team. They're doing sprints, but they're given a roadmap, a quarterly roadmap of everything they're supposed to build. So, what is that? That is certainly that's not agile in any meaningful sense. It does get you a little bit of benefits because now you're breaking things up into sprints and iterations, which is better than not doing that. But, you know, what we're talking about there is maybe 10 or 20 percent the value of agile, really. So that's um, there's a lot of examples of this, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I guess the fair chunk of the value of Agile is in that adaptability and flexibility that comes with changing tact as you are um, running these sprints as opposed to committing to, okay, here's everything we're going to build for the next three months, regardless of what comes back. Exactly. Um, so I wanted to just go down the um, product manager uh, rabbit hole for a second, Marty. And um, one of the more polarizing sort of conversations in product for a few years now has been this whole notion of whether the product manager is the quote-unquote CEO of the product. Um, what's your take on this? Well, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a controversial one. Um, and I, w- I should also admit, when I first heard this, it was more than 20 years ago, and I worked for Netscape, uh, which you probably heard of. And yeah. Netscape had, first thing to know is it had some amazing product people. Ben Horowitz was there. His, one of, I, we both worked for Mark Andreessen. Uh, the CEO is a guy named Jim Barksdale, who is uh, the epitome of a great high integrity CEO. So put yourself back into that scenario. Um, 
back then being the CEO of a product is like all good. <laughs> that is a, an honor and a privilege and, um, and it meant you know, be this person. What it meant was somebody who understands all elements of the business and is really driving with the team to come up to a successful solution. It is. It was never meant to be that they are the boss of anybody. Uh, the reason um, that metaphor has struggled in the last decade or so is because sadly in the tech industry many CEOs are not like Jim Barksdale they are you know jerks there's no other way to put it and um, there are some product managers that have thought that that's what it means to be the product manager that they get to be that sort of jerk on the team and uh, and I want to be honest I know some product managers like that but that said, uh, it, that reaction caused most people, uh, most, let's say, leaders in the product community to back off of that analogy and say, no, they're not the CEO of the product. They're just a member of the product team. And in my opinion, that has contributed to uh, the really the uh, increased struggles with the role of product manager. Because now we got people that were scared to be leaders and scared to really do their job. So recently I came out publicly and said, no, the product manager does need to be the CEO of the product. That does not mean that they're a boss of anybody. They're not. It doesn't give them any rights or privileges above anybody else. But it does mean that the only other job in an organization that is like the product manager in this sense of needing to know how it's built and how it's designed and how it's marketed and how it's sold and how it's funded is the CEO. And that really is product manager, CEO. Those are the, the roles that are responsible for that breadth of knowledge about the business and the customers and the ecosystem. And so uh, I have been trying to encourage people, no, it's, you need to step up uh, and be the product, the CEO of your product. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I should mention that's going on here is yeah, in the last 10 years, as we just talked about, most organizations have moved to Agile, which I think is a good thing. The bad thing, though, is that most product managers today, the only training they have had is a certified Scrum product owner class, a CSPO class. And that is that is maybe 10% of the job of a product manager. And so the result of this, one of the consequences, unintended consequences of moving to Agile is that we have more, well, let's, I put it this way, less trained product managers, I would argue, than ever. And, and this has caused a real backlash because the real CEO of the company is looking at these product owners and saying, you know, they are not even close to the CEO of the product. They are, they are more like project managers. What are we doing here? And they're right. And so uh, there's really two battles I'm trying to wage along those lines. One is to make sure product managers know that product owner responsibility is just a tiny 
portion of their responsibility and that they also need to understand what really distinguishes a product manager is being the CEO of the product. Mm. And um, just like a, a good CEO or a good leader of any persuasion, the, the product manager should be about not directing but facilitating outcomes. And and like you said, um, having that CSPO's 10% of the battle, I mean, they need to understand the customer, they need to understand the, uh, the commercial aspects of the business, the they need to be able to have conversations with engineers, with designers. They need to understand UX. Like there's so many different components that go into it. And unless you can see things holistically, then you're not going to be a very good, uh, you're not going to be very good at facilitating those outcomes because you're not going to have the best conversations or understand where the product needs to go. Exactly right. Um, so on the product manager and on speaking with customers, should the product manager be attending every user interview? I mean, is that how far down the uh, rabbit hole, the product manager should go as far as getting that nuanced understanding of customer needs is concerned. Oh, that's an easy one. Absolutely. In fact, it's really hard to argue that anything else is more valuable for a product manager. (laughs) Um, They... Oh, don't get me wrong. Again, there's a lot of things they need to do, but it really starts with deep understanding of your users and customers. Now, the designers are there too, obviously, and the designers are, on, but they're really looking at, we're, we're talking to the same users and customers, but we're really learning different things uh, and focused on different things. The designers are really trying to come up with something that these users can understand and figure out how to use. And that can be very hard in its own right. Product managers trying to understand more holistically what's going on. How do they make a purchase decision? What really, who are the influencers? Who are the approvers? How do they actually fund this thing? And how is it actually going to be deployed? And what are the systems it's going to replace? And what kind of migration challenges are there? And a thousand other things. And so uh, if the product manager is not there at every single user engagement customer interview, uh, to me, you know, this is uh, this is not a product manager. They are not a product manager. Yeah, and, and that makes perfect sense. Always, always start with the customer. Um, a couple of other things I just wanted to touch or double click on, if you will, um, in this conversation, Marty, was this notion of um, high integrity commitments, which um, you've proposed as something that can replace uh, the need to commit to a hard date. What's that all about? Well, it's just in in this is one of those things in. Agile actually doesn't come from the product community. It comes from the custom software world. And um, in the custom software world, it's it's hard too in its own way, but it is different. In the product world, we've got, you know, there are real dates that matter, like uh, Apple's turning out a new version of the iOS. We can't change that. It our, our stuff has to run on that when it's available or the holidays, you know, Christmas is not moving. And so if you're an e-commerce company, you've got to make sure everything's ready by a a few weeks before Christmas uh, when the systems are going to be at their biggest demand, things like that. We have a lot of reasons for a real needing a real date. And a lot of the agile purists will, you know, will sort of scoff at the idea of a real date, but we really do have uh, this situation. Not all the time, but they exist. Um, and so we need a way to actually have what's called a high integrity commitment. That means that that not only do we know we can deliver it when we say, but we also know it's going to actually work for the customer. 
and so this idea of a high integrity commitment has been around a while. It just and it's not that hard to do. It's a little bit of a give and take. Nor what it what it usually entails is that we have to do enough discovery on what on the commitment we're being asked to do. Discovery is just the name we give to um, how to when we're figuring out the product that we need to deliver. So discovery is figuring out the product and delivery is building it and testing it and deploying it, QA testing it and deploying it. That's all. So we'll do the necessary discovery to make sure we know we what if we can deliver on this commitment and when we can deliver on this commitment. And then once we have uh, reasonable confidence on that commitment, we'll, we'll make that commitment and then, uh, and then deliver, we'll deliver it on it, of course, as well. So um, earlier in the conversation, Marty, you mentioned uh, that you worked at Netscape with uh, Mark Andreessen and um, you asked whether or not I, I remember Netscape and I do. I mean, I am, I'm 34 now, so my first internet browser was in fact Netscape Navigator way back in, I think it was 1995 or 96, something to that effect. But um, I mean, you've, you've been there, you've lived through it, you were there at the start of the commercial internet um, new technologies were being invented almost constantly, and now it seems like we're going through through that again. You know, we've got blockchain, we've got AR, VR, there's CRISPR, Cas9, IoT, big data, you name it. Um, everything's happening, um, and a lot of these technologies seem to be, I suppose, threatening, if you will, um, to change the face of business and life again. Um, I mean, how do you find this particular period today compares with the hustle of the early 90s? Well, yeah, well, it's funny because just a couple years ago, we had the 20-year reunion for Netscape and none of us could really believe it had been 20 years because it just went so fast. I do think, um, I mean, I was in the technology industry for a good amount of years, even before the internet, but and change was constant then too. But the internet definitely accelerated things. Um, I don't see it really just as the late 90s were a big push, and then now it's been constant. I do think, um, especially with machine learning technologies, which are like, depending on how you count, the third or fourth or fifth incarnation of that, but I feel like it's real now, finally, and that is that is generating a lot of excitement and activity in the teams I work with. Uh, it's already starting to show up in really impressive places. So that it's not so much I think that that the velocity of the change as much as uh, some technologies do have broader impact than others. And uh, machine learning is one of those. You know, with blockchain technology, it, it's still, uh, it's it's much earlier than it is, I would argue, than with the AI. I, I do think it's going to have profound impact. But in truth, I'm more worried about the uh, criminal applications of it than the good applications of it. That's one that's got a lot of yellow flags going on. Um, but that's another discussion. But uh, the point is, uh, yes, the technologies are changing constantly. That's really what, to me, is attractive about the technology industry. Uh, and I always warn people, if you don't like change, this is a terrible industry to, to get into because really uh, everything, you know, the life, the half-life of the technology is maybe a couple of years. So 
it is always uh, reinventing. And to me, that's what makes it interesting because in product, it's all about combining real customer pain and needs with, with what's just now possible. And since what's just now possible is always changing, there's always a lot of great product work to do. So, um, yeah, I don't really see that. I don't see it slowing down or changing or stopping. Yeah, yeah definitely. And um, I guess on, on blockchain and uh, the criminal applications, um, I guess throughout history, we've seen whenever there's been some sort of disruptive emerging communications technology or transactional technology, oftentimes it is the criminals who get on board first, but hopefully over time, um, things balance out and we have net good and we figure out how to regulate it effectively without compromising the underlying uh, value of of the uh, technology, which um, would be a shame to see if we regulate it prematurely and a lot of the potential profound implications that you're um, alluding to um, don't come to fruition. But um, on, the, on AI, um, obviously you said earlier in the show that this is something you studied and you've worked in the space for quite a while in, in various capacities. Um, you know, it seems like forever. And I think it was Tim Harford, um, the author of um, books like Messi, who I had on the show a while ago. And he was talking about uh, how since the 60s, we've always said that general AI is 20 years away. And, and even today, people are like, well, it's probably, you know, 20 years away. I mean, what are your thoughts, Marty? Yeah, well... First thing I should say is I, it's been several years since I was actively studying in that area, and so uh, I am not the. Exp- uh, but I have been reading a lot on this, and there's been some very good articles that try to put all this in perspective. What most people talk about is AI is not nearly the general AI, and the point is we don't even need the general AI to do the kinds of really very impressive things. Most of which that are going on right now are not general AI and don't need to be. So I I wouldn't. That doesn't bother me in the least. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very, very succinctly put. Um, well, thank you so much, Marty. You've left our audience with a lot of value bombs. But before you go, we've got a few minutes left. So I'm going to just throw you into our three-question lightning round. Are you ready to rock? Sure. <laughs> Let's do it. So question number one, Marty, is given your wealth of experience in the space of technology, if you could work for any organization at any stage of the company lifecycle, who would it be and why? Well, I, I will tell you there's some really cool companies. And I, if I could be at SpaceX, mm-hmm. uh, I think I would be. I would I'd love SpaceX. I also deeply admire Tesla. Yeah. Would that be uh, now or during the early days where everyone told them that what they were doing was crazy and it couldn't be done? I still hear that about uh, <laughs> SpaceX. And I, I just, yeah, I mean, it's any point in time there i just i love that they're tackling something very hard and i love how much how disruptive they 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 continue to be yeah and i think they're just a great case study to point to when people say something can't be done um well here it is like here's the um attitude and just belief that one needs to have just to push forward because if you don't then we'll just stay stagnant and won't have these breakthrough innovations so i think it's a great case study and i often speak to uh spacex uh, launching i think it was a falcon 9 rocket into orbit three times you know exploded three times in a row and then they had almost no money in the bank just enough to launch one more time and boom got into order into orbit and that was like just such an awesome case study um so question number two marty is if you could ask anyone a question dead or alive 
who would it be and what would you ask? That's a really hard question. Anybody? That's a very broad <laughs> set of people. <laughs> uh, and even uh, in the realms, um, I got a chance to, to meet Steve Jobs a couple times, but I would love to, would have loved like the opportunity to have like a dinner. Uh, no, I'll tell you somebody uh, that there is a guy that I would have loved to have been able to sit down over dinner. His name is was Bill Campbell. He was known as the coach of Silicon Valley. He literally did coach Steve Jobs for 20 years. He would literally coach Larry and Sergey at early Google for decades. Uh, and he, um, he I, I never was lucky enough to be coached by him directly, but I actually learned a lot of what I know from people that were coached directly by him. So I feel like indirectly he's really helped me and uh, and he certainly helped our industry in a big way. And I would love to, uh, would have loved to have that kind of quality discussion with him. Fantastic. Seems like a bit of an unsung hero underpinning all the success of the um, Silicon Valley technology firms. He is probably the greatest person that nobody knows. Yeah. Well put, well put. Um, and lucky last, um, you've been obviously in the scene for, for a few decades now. You've been writing books, coaching, speaking, all sorts of good stuff. Do you have any uh, daily rituals or routines, Marty, that help you stay on top of your game? I'll share a little uh, tip. I Because um, it is hard to keep up with the technology <laughs> industry. You know that. Uh, anybody who's trying knows it's hard. There is a a blogger that I follow religiously. His name is Ben Thompson. Mm -hmm. He writes a blog, publishes a blog called Stratechery, which is a goofy name, but it's S-T-R-A-T-E-C-H-E-R-Y.com. It's a subscription blog service, and he is probably my favorite industry analyst for the tech industry. And he shares his insights every day. And first of all, uh, he, that's all he does. So I'm able to leverage. He covers most of the industries that I work with. And I'll also admit he is a much better strategic, strategic thinker than I am. So I learn a lot by reading his analysis. Fantastic. So that was Stratechery. I think we'll, um, we'll add that to the show notes for our listeners because that just sounds like a glowing endorsement. So um, something hopefully our, our listeners can benefit from. So thank you so much, Marty. Um, you've provided a wealth of um, value for our listeners. Um, you've imparted a lot of wisdom. Do you have any parting words of wisdom before we wrap up? Uh, no, I, I hope that was useful. And uh, thanks very much, Steve, for the uh, invitation. Not a problem. Well, people can pick up a copy of the book and books on Amazon and where all good books are sold. They can find you on Twitter at Kagan. And of course, they can find out more about your company at svpg.com. Um, thank you so much, Marty. Hope you enjoy the rest of your afternoon. And you. Thank you. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.